As we find ourselves now uh, in December already, as Pastor Danny reminded us, don't know where the year went, but we find ourselves in that Advent season, the Christmas season, and so we're going to take uh, 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 the next several weeks through the month of December to look at Christmas through the lives of some characters that we see in the Christmas story. We did this last year, and we looked uh, primarily at some of the male figures that show up in the Christmas story, Herod, uh, Simeon, uh, Joseph, Zechariah. This year, uh, we're going to look at Christmas through the lives of some characters that appear in the Christmas story. story, sort of, Uh, not male characters, but this year female characters. And uh, these are going to be some of the female characters that, friends, you did not expect. So I invite you to open your Bibles to two places this morning. First of all, to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew's gospel chapter 1. And then also to all the way back to the front of the Bible to Genesis chapter 38. Matthew 1 and Genesis 38. When Matthew begins his gospel, his telling, his history of the life of Jesus, he starts his gospel story, his story of the life of Christ with a genealogy. And there are lots of genealogies all through Scripture. If, uh, if you need a good taste for genealogies, just turn to Chronicles sometime this week. You'll find lots of them there. If you, uh, 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 there's other places too. Genesis, Numbers has several. Ezra and Nehemiah each have some and lots of lists of names. But Matthew does this and so does Luke. Both of those gospel writers uh, take pains to show us where Jesus came from. And specifically, they want to show us that Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David, ultimately the son of God. And the way that they get there is a little bit different. There are some names in, mentioned in Matthew that aren't mentioned in Luke, but uh, Jesus' family tree is a, is a big family tree. I mean, over the course of a, a few thousand, a couple thousand years or so, it gets pretty diverse. And you could trace you know, things back to their origin a couple of different ways. Uh, Matthew traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to Abraham through a a particular line of people, and we're going to look at just a few of these. Now, I didn't put this passage in the slides behind me, but you have your Bibles open, so I invite you to stand, if you would, with me, as we hear God's Word from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through through 6. This is how Matthew begins his story of Jesus. He says, "...the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ..." the son of David, the son of Abraham. Already we know where we're going. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I don't know if you caught on to it or not, but at several places there in in some of these verses, Matthew says, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so by, and then he inserts a female name. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David the king, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. 
Now, it's not very common, uh, actually, it's exceedingly uncommon for women to be mentioned in genealogies of people like this in the Bible. So when Matthew starts his genealogy this way, listing these four women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah, we know her name to be Bathsheba, and in a few weeks we'll see that, that Matthew is saying the wife of Uriah on purpose. He, it's not that he forgot her name, he's emphasizing something about her life. But for Matthew to start his genealogy this way by including these women, he's doing something on purpose. He's drawing our attention to these characters, to these individuals, to these women who appear in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, of course, every man who fathered some son fathered that son by a woman, right? That's how biology works. So there are lots of women involved in this genealogy, but Matthew only mentions these four. And the question is why? What did these women... Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah. What do they have to do with the Christmas story? Why are they pertinent to to, to Jesus' birth, to the incarnation of the eternal Son of God? Well, Matthew is here giving us a glimpse into the family tree of Jesus. Now, some of you, when you go to your family reunions or you start recounting maybe your family tree, your ancestry to other people, you probably have someone in your family tree that you would prefer was not there. A, a rotten apple on the family tree, right? That crazy uncle that you're, you never know what's going to happen when they come over to, you know, family Christmas or, uh, or that cousin who always manages to say something at just the wrong time. Or maybe your own brother who... You never know if he's going to show up or not or has kind of a sordid past. And friends, if, if someone doesn't come to mind when you think of those certain kind of rotten apples on the tree, I just warn you, you might be it. But we all have these kind of ugly branches, these kind of maybe not so pretty fruit on the branches of our family tree. But when Matthew tells us where Jesus came from, He doesn't hide the uglier branches of Jesus' family tree. And we're going to see as we look at the lives of these women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah, we're going to see some ugliness there. But Matthew doesn't hide those things. He doesn't doesn't tamp down the strangeness of the stories in Jesus' family, in his ancestry. He highlights them. He goes to pains to point them out, to call our attention to these women and their lives and what was going on around them. And while some of these situations, some of these women and the the circumstances of their life may appear rather unsightly, they are precisely the parts of Christ's family that we really need to know about. And that Matthew is saying, even from the beginning, you need to know about this. The main idea of our time this morning in Matthew chapter one, or mostly in Genesis chapter 38, as we look at the first of these women, Tamar, is this, that the unsightly branches of Jesus's family tree show us that he is a savior for unsightly people. The unsightly branches of Jesus's family tree show us that he is a savior for unsightly people. This Christmas, friends, let us, let, let us allow Jesus, let us go to Jesus to redeem the unsightly events of our past Because he's a savior for unsightly people, let us go to him to redeem the unsightly parts, the unsightly bits of our past, of our lives. So if you will, take your Bibles now and flip them all the way back to the beginning-ish, to Genesis chapter 38. As we come to Genesis chapter 38, we find ourselves in the middle of, now we're going way back in time, the middle of the Joseph narrative. You remember Abraham 
was called by God to leave his family or to leave his homeland to the new land that God would show him and start his family there. And Abraham has a son, the son of promise, Isaac. And Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau, twins. Esau was the older, but Jacob comes out grasping the heel of his older brother uh, Esau. Uh, by means of deception, Jacob, the younger of the twins, manages to steal his older brother's birthright, which becomes a bit of a theme throughout the course of Genesis. The younger brother, the, the younger twin, uh, kind of snatching something away from the older brother. And then Jacob, receiving the promise, receiving the birthright that came from Isaac through his father Abraham, Jacob wrestles with God in the middle of the night at a place called Bethel, and his name is changed from Jacob to Israel. Israel has himself 12 sons, thus the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons, uh, Joseph, his, the 11th of 12 sons, was, was uh, Israel's, was Jacob's favorite of the sons. And we know that Joseph was despised by his older brothers because of his father's uh, favoring of him. And the brothers altogether conspire to get rid of Joseph, this younger brother who's really just a pain in the neck. And so they throw him into a a pit. They throw him into a cistern, a big hole used for gathering and holding water that was dried out. And while they're there thinking about what in the world do we do with our brother, one of the brothers, Judah, uh, has an idea. says, hey, listen, it doesn't profit us anything to to, to kill Joseph. Uh, Then we'll have blood on our hands. We kind of have to explain that to our dad and and, and where he's gone. Let's do this. Let's sell Joseph to these uh, slaves. Slave traders that are coming through. So they sell Joseph uh, into the hands of these slave traders. Joseph goes into Egypt, and you kind of know the rest of the story. Joseph rises to second in power of Egypt, uh, such that when the rest of the known world outside of Egypt is going through a severe famine, all of the, the brothers, all of his previous brothers, return, go to Egypt to get grain, and Joseph is there, the means of their redemption and salvation. And it's a nice story. But here in Genesis 38, we depart from that Joseph narrative f- to focus in on one of the brothers, Judah. And at the beginning of Genesis chapter 38, Moses, the author of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, reminds us of a particular instance in the life of Judah. Judah, when he had grown to marriageable age, goes away from his brothers, he goes away from home, and he marries a Canaanite wife named Shua. And he has three sons by Shua, Er, Onan, and Shelah. Now his first son, Er, uh, gets to marriageable age, and so... Judah finds for Er a wife. Her name is Tamar. Now, we're not sure if Tamar is of Canaanite origin or, or Hebrew origin. Not really sure. The text doesn't say for certain. But at any rate, Er has this wife, Tamar. And uh, Er is a wicked man, Moses tells us in Genesis 38. So wicked, and we don't know how, but so wicked, in fact, that God puts Er to death, kills him. Now, this doesn't especially reflect very well on his father, Judah. There are lots of fathers in the Old Testament that have sons that fail. We might think of Aaron, the brother of Moses, whose two sons, Nadab and Abihu, were to serve as priests in the tabernacle. And the first time they go into the tabernacle to offer incense before the Lord, they bring in a whole different recipe for incense than what God had commanded, and God puts them to death in the tabernacle because of it. We might think of Eli, the prophet in Samuel's day, who had two sons, uh, Hophni and Phinehas, who they were also priests in the tabernacle, who used to take, uh, take advantage of the people that were bringing sacrifices for their own benefit. God puts them to death. Even Samuel has two sons that are not particularly good. So Judah is is really just kind of setting the pattern for failed dads in the Old Testament. 
Judah's first son, Ur, is a wicked man. We don't know how wicked, we don't know why, but God puts him to death. Now, there was this law, there was this practice uh, in the ancient Near East called leveret marriage. And what that means is when, when the oldest son of a particular family, say he dies in an untimely way, and he leaves a widow behind, uh, the, the, there was a, a practice in that day where that widow would be taken into the home of the next uh, oldest brother. And they would essentially be married, and the first child of their union would bear the name of the, the dead, the deceased father, and carry on his lineage and receive his inheritance. And so when Ur dies, Judah does that for Ur. He gives Tamar to his next son, Onan. Now, Onan is not a particularly good guy either, as you'll read in the verses of Scripture here. And he intentionally prevents Tamar from getting pregnant uh, as a result of their union, knowing that their firstborn child will actually be Ur's son and not his son. And he doesn't want to split his inheritance among his, older, his dead older brother's kids. So he intentionally keeps Tamar from getting pregnant. And you know what God does to Onan? Puts him to death too. Now, Judah has a third son, Shelah. But Judah's already seen that the first, his first two sons, who were each married to Tamar at one point or another, have died. And Judah's putting some things together. Now, he doesn't know the whole calculus because he doesn't know the mind of God. And he obviously doesn't know how wicked his sons are, which I want to say, Judah, how blind are you? But Judah thinks the problem is Tamar. So he doesn't want to give Tamar to his next youngest son, Shelah, and him die too. And then Judah have no offspring, no, no lineage after him whatsoever. So he tells Tamar, go home, be a widow until Shelah is old enough to be married. And then I'll, I'll, I'll give him to you as a husband and we can move forward that way. So we read in verse 12 of Genesis chapter 38. And I'm going to read verses 12 through the end of the chapter. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. And his friend Hira, the Adullamite, was there. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. Judah is intentionally not giving his son to Tamar in marriage. So Tamar goes, I got to do something. I've got no husband, no opportunity for offspring. I've got to do something about this. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. We'll look at that a little bit more in a second. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I'll send you a young goat from the flock, which, by the way, was quite a nice gift. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, Well, what pledge shall I give you? What, what collateral do you want that I'll make good on the promise to give you a goat? She replied, Your signet, your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. And so he gave them to her, and he went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adolamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is that cult prostitute who was at Anayim at the roadside? 
And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things on her own or we'll be laughed at. You see, I sent the young goat and you didn't find her. Let her keep the stuff, no big deal. Water under the bridge, let's just move on. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify, and, and she said, please identify whose these are. I've got this signet, a cord, and the staff. And Judah identified them, and he said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which means a breach. And after, afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. If you're looking in pages of Scripture to reflect on the true, the beautiful, the good, you come to Genesis 38, and there's not very much beautiful or good about this passage. It's, it's pretty ugly. Like, this is the kind of stuff that Jerry Springer and Maury Povich scripts are made of. And yet, Tamar, the woman at the center of this story, is explicitly mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew intentionally says, pay attention to her. Why? Well, as we look at Genesis 38, we we see a few different things going on here. So let's walk through the story together. First of all, we see Judah's unjustified indignity. Judah's unjustified indignity. It's common to assume that because someone appears in Jesus' genealogy, that they are presumably heroic. They're a a person of, of, of imitable character. Not really with Judah. Jesus' prophetic title as the Lion of Judah is in many ways a contrast to the person of Judah who was himself anything but lion-hearted. We can't look at Genesis 38 and think, Judah's a good guy, I like this dude. Kids be like Judah. That, no, kids don't be like Judah, right? He's not the hero of this story. He's not imitable in any way. There's nothing good really about his life. He's got two wicked sons that are probably wicked because he as a father has not shown them the way that they ought to go in. And he uh, deceives his daughter-in-law who's been widowed by two of his sons and prevents her from being cared for uh, through a a relationship of marriage by which children can be born that can support their parents later on in life and that sort of thing. Judah, after his wife dies, goes out to be comforted by a prostitute. I mean... Here in the scenario of Genesis 38, Judah is meant to be portrayed as a father and a father-in-law who is so selfishly motivated to protect himself and to protect his his own lineage that he perpetrates a terrible indignity against his daughter-in-law, Tamar. As we saw earlier in the first verses of Genesis 38, her first husband, Ur, Judah's oldest son, dies, leaving her a widow. And, and begins that process of leveret marriage. And so Onan is the next brother who's to be with Tamar to bear children for his deceased brother. 
but Onan intentionally prevents Tamar from getting pregnant and the Lord punishes him for that wickedness and he dies. And then we have Shelah, the youngest of the sons, who would be next in line to marry Tamar. And Judah says, yeah, yeah, Tamar, sure, just wait till Shelah's old enough, then you can marry him. But all along he knows, I'm not going to give Shelah to her. So instead he says, Tamar, go back home to your father's house, be a widow, and when the time comes, I'll, I'll give you Shayla, but he knows he's not going to do that. Maybe just hoping that enough time will pass and she'll forget about the whole deal. Or maybe she'll somehow find another husband, which would have been really unlikely for a widow in that day. So Tamar sent back to her father's home as a widow without any recourse for care or support in her life. Without a husband, without sons to provide for you, in a very agricultural, agrarian society. These people did not yet live in major cities with commerce like we did. There's no Amazon to order your groceries and other things from, right? If you want to eat it, you got to grow it yourself. In order to grow it yourself, you got to have a husband, you got to have some kids, you got to have a family to work the farm. And here is Tamar with none of it, bereft of it. Two of her husbands, both wicked, have died, and she is being intentionally withheld from her rightful husband, Shelah. Sending Tamar away like this, Judah's act of sending her away like this, was, was akin to all but relegating her to a life of poverty and destitution. When Judah sends her back as a widow, he knows what he's doing. He knows he's relegating her to a life of poverty and destitution. Dependent only upon the kindness of others. Herself unable to marry or bear legitimate children. Judah does this. He perpetrates this this unjust indignity against her because he fails to see the wickedness of his own sons. He thinks Tamar's the problem, not his own kids. Because perhaps he himself has, has a deep root, a deep vein, deep habits of sin in his own life that prevent him from seeing maybe his own wickedness and how his children are emulating that. I don't know. The text doesn't say. But Judah, in his pride to preserve his lineage and to keep a son alive, sends Tamar away to be poor and destitute, husbandless the rest of her life. That's the desperation of this situation. And it's what leads to Tamar's desperate deceit. Judah perpetrates this unjustified indignity, and Tamar responds to it with, a, with desperate deception. The sordid family history progresses, as we read in verses 12 through 26. So Tamar, after some time... Verse 12 says, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, uh, Shua's daughter, uh, uh, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up. So in the course of time is kind of a way of saying after some years. So Tamar recognizes that now Shelah is old enough to be married, to be given to her as a husband. And yet Judah has not done it. So a long time goes by without Tamar being provided a husband. And so she now takes matters into her own hands. In this act of desperation, she disguises herself. She takes off the clothes of her widowhood, which, by the way, would have been recognizable to everyone in the community. Everybody would have known by what she was wearing that she was a widow. She takes off her widow's clothes and she puts on regular clothes and she veils her face. She covers her face. And she stands at a strategic location along a road that she knows Judah is going to go along in order to get Judah's attention. Now, the veil that she puts over, over her face, many have thought, is a symbol of prostitution. 
But actually, in ancient days, a veil is a symbol of betrothal. It's a symbol of modesty. It's a way of highlighting a married or an engaged woman's beauty and also saying that she's kind of off limits to other people. Perhaps it is that she has worn a veil, the veil of betrothal, because she knows that she is rightfully betrothed to Shelah, the son that Judah is not going to give to her. But also the veil serves a practical purpose in that it hides her identity as she's about to perpetrate this deception against her father-in-law who has done this indignity to her. So her actions, she goes along the side of the road to... uh, get Judah's attention to do this thing that is about to take place. She does it on purpose. She's deceptive in it. It's an act of desperation. It's not right. It's not good. I would not say to my daughters, be like Tamar. But at the same time, what Judah does with her in assuming that she's a prostitute and engaging in the sexual relationship with her outside of his own marriage, even though he himself is a widower, even Judah is in the wrong. So the whole situation is a big hot mess, right? Judah says, hey, uh, prostitute on the side of the road, whose name I don't know and face I can't see, uh, let's, uh, let's enter into a contract here. We'll uh, do what your profession does, and I will pay you for it. And she says, what are you going to give me? He says, I'll give you a young goat, which, as I said before, is a good gift. It really, really is. You may not have room in your house for a goat, but if somebody were to give you a goat in ancient days, uh, you'd have a a really tasty meal ahead of you. Or you could allow maybe that goat to grow up, and if it's a female, she'll provide milk for you, and you get cheese and butter and all kinds of good stuff. A goat is a good gift. He doesn't have the goat with him, obviously, because he's off to do other things. So Tamar says, well, hey, listen, I got to make sure that you're going to be good on this really good gift, so I'm going to take some collateral. So she takes from him three things, his signet or his seal, his cord, and his staff. Here's what these are. These are all personal identifying marks. His signet or his seal would have been one of two things, either a ring that he wore that he would, uh, uh, that had an engraving on it with his name or something uh, identifying him that he would press into wax on a, on a seal of a letter, or perhaps the signet could have been um, a, a, a clay cylinder or a stone cylinder that had his name carved into it that would be rolled over wet clay uh, of, of a new pot that was being made to identify who it belonged to. The cord was probably a, just a, a cord that either the ring or the signet hung on around his neck. It would have belonged to him. And his staff was uh, perhaps something like a shepherd's crook that he would have uh, used in an agrarian society. Maybe as he's walking along the road just for help or assistance. But it could also be, as one commentator has said, that on the head of the staff was carved some sort of identifier that this is Judah's staff, right? So she says, give me all the things that really belong to you and everyone will know will belong to you as collateral for this deed. And Judah says, sure, no big deal. So he gives her all this stuff. They go and do their thing and she disappears. Judah sends a friend of his to go look for Tamar. Can't find her anywhere. Sends, sends his buddy with the goat to give the goat to Tamar and get all of Judah's stuff back. And she has totally ghosted him. She's gone back to her father's house. She's taken off the veil and all that sort of thing. And now instead she's put back on the clothes of her widowhood. She's gone back to her old, her old life. So this, this deception is just all over the place. Tamar disguises herself. She deceives Judah. Then she runs away. And three months later, she shows back up on the scene again. Tamar the widow appears, now public and pregnant. Let me say that again. Tamar the widow appears in public, pregnant. 
Every, that's better. Everybody in the society, when she comes out and she's showing, would have gone, <gasps> right? Because something has happened. Widows don't do what Tamar did to get pregnant. So now the, the, whole, the whole area just erupts in scandal. And somebody tells Judah, Judah, your daughter-in-law, who's supposed to be given to Shayla in marriage, even though you really weren't going to do it, and it's been a really long time, but whatever, she who was supposed to be waiting for Shayla to come along is now pregnant. And Judah says, that horrible cult prostitute, burn her to death. So they're pulling Tamar out. To presumably burn her to death. She says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Here are all the things that belong to the person who got me pregnant. I've got this seal, I've got this cord, and I've got this staff. Who do they belong to? Well, it's obvious because Judah's name is literally all over them. Judah knows it, and he goes, oh, snap. She's more righteous than I am. Because I didn't give her to my son, Shayla. She's more in the right than I am because I didn't do right by her. This statement by Judah, this resignation to the fact that he has done wrong, is a reflection on just how unjustified and how undignified he had previously treated Tamar. When Judah, confronted with his own sin, sees the reality of it, he says, she, even as deceitful as she has been. Even she is more righteous than I am. Friends, see, Judah is not the hero of this story. By the way, neither is Tamar. There's there's no one in this story that I can say, hey, good job. You're setting a great example for all of us to follow. That that person does not exist in the story. Let's just simply admit it. There's nothing, almost nothing in the story that's worthy of our imitation. If you're reading Genesis 38 and you're trying to figure out what sort of person should I be like, you would do better to ask what sort of person should I not be like? Because every example that we have of, of, of action here is a negative one. So we have Judah's unjust indignity against Tamar, Tamar's desperate deceit against Judah to, to bear children that can provide for her because she knows that her life is destined to uh, destitution and poverty. But then out of all of this, out of this whole sordid affair, We get at the end of these verses an unexpected protection of God's promise. As the story rounds out, we find that this union of Judah and Tamar has produced twins, Perez and Zerah. Perez gets his arm out first, but he pulls it back in. Zerah is the first to exit the womb. Nevertheless, Perez gets the birthright as the firstborn because he exited the womb first, sort of. It's kind of a humorous and surprising parallel to Jacob and Esau. Esau born first, but Jacob born right after him, grasping his heel. Jacob, who would later turn the tables on his brother to receive the older brother's birthright. We have Perez kind of setting a pattern for what's going to happen later. Or, or, excuse me, repeating a pattern that's taken place before. But we need to fast forward a little bit to see the importance of Tamar giving birth to Judah's sons, Perez and Zerah. On Jacob's deathbed, Jacob is the father of Judah. His name is also Israel. When Israel is about to die at the end of Genesis, kind of on his deathbed, he's giving his final blessing to all of his sons, his 12 sons. And Israel, Jacob, says this to Judah in Genesis 49, verses 8 through 10. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. 
Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter. The scepter is a symbol of of royal power, uh, of, of royal honor. It's a symbol of kingship. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. What is Israel saying? What is Jacob saying about his son Judah as he's about to die? Now, mind you, Judah is not the firstborn. He's the fourthborn. I think that's right. Somebody confirm that for the fourthborn? I almost forgot. Okay, good. We're right. Uh, Judah's the fourthborn of Israel's sons. You would think that the firstborn, if, and by the way, Israel's not yet a kingdom. Israel is one man and his 12 sons and their kids at this time, okay? But Israel, as he's on his deathbed, says to his son, his fourth son, Judah, you will be a king. Your line will be a kingly line, a royal line. And the scepter will not depart from your line until you rule over all of the nations. Israel's promising to his son, Judah, you will be a king and the people after you as well. So as we follow Judah's descendants down through the pages of Scripture, through the storyline of God's history among his people, we make our way inexorably to a king, who is David, who is king over the nation of Israel, who himself receives a promise from God in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God says to David the king, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So Judah gets the promise that he'll have kingly offspring. David is one of those offspring. He gets a promise to be a king forever. And centuries go by, even after David dies, through the division of the kingdom and then the fall of the kingdom of Israel and the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, leading ultimately to the return of the southern kingdom of Judah from Babylon, but with no king in the line of David. So David said, it is promised by God, you'll have a king forever. But after the kingdom splits and it's taken into captivity and then they ultimately return, there is no king. Herod, who is king at the time of Jesus, king at the time of Jesus, is a placeholder of a king. He's not really even in the line of David. He's just sort of been ceremonially placed there as king. So there's these two promises, a promise to Judah, the scepter shall never depart from you. You'll you'll rule over all your people. A promise to David, who is a son of a son of a son of a son of Judah, that I'll that God says to David, I'll make you a king forever. Put, there, will never be some, uh, one of your, there, there will never be a time where one of your sons is not on the throne. And then there's this whole period of time, about 500 years from when the people return from exile in Babylon, where there is no king on the throne. So what's going on? We're left with this question, where is that king of Judah? Where is that king like David? Until we get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, where we read the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Who would have expected God to protect a promise yet unmade in Genesis 38? Judah's going to be the father of a kingly line, but he's not even a king yet, and that promise has not even been made yet. Who would have expected God to protect a promise yet unmade through the sordid affair and pregnancy of Judah and Tamar? This much is true. Had Tamar not done what she had done in deceiving Judah in Genesis 38, he would have no rightful heir to the promise made of him in Genesis 49. 
10 chapters and several years ahead of time. God protecting a promise he's not even made yet. Genesis chapter 38, this situation between Judah and Tamar is an ugly event that's brought about by unjustified indignity and desperate deception. But friends, it secures the promise of God for a Messiah, a lion from the tribe of Judah, a king in the line of David who will rule the peoples forever. That's why Matthew includes this in his genealogy. There's promises attached to this really ugly event in Jesus' genealogy, in Jesus' lineage. Promises that we need to pay attention to. Promises that we need to, to hold on to. Promise of a king forever. That's the story of Genesis 38 and Judah and Tamar. Awesome, right? You're super encouraged. But besides knowing this story, what can we learn about Jesus? Because Tamar appears in the genealogy of Jesus. What do we learn about Jesus? Why does Matthew want us to remember Tamar? When we think about Jesus at Christmas, what do we, what do we learn about Christ from this unsightly branch of Jesus' family tree? Well, first of all this, friends. Jesus identifies with the neglected, with the abused, and the mistreated like Tamar. Jesus identifies with neglected, abused, mistreated people like Tamar. When the Messiah comes, friends, he identifies. He, he associates himself with the neglected, like the Gentile woman whose daughter was afflicted by a demon, who none of the Jewish exorcists would, could, could even have helped her because of her background, because she's a Gentile. When, when Jesus sees the faith of this Gentile woman whose daughter is afflicted by demon possession... When he sees the faith of this woman, a faith that proclaims that he is a blessing to all nations, he heals her daughter. Mark chapter 7. When the Messiah comes, he identifies not just with the neglected, but also with the abused. Like the woman at the well in John 4, who we talked about a couple of weeks ago, who had five husbands and who was, at the time of Jesus' conversation with her, presently living with a man who was unwilling to make her his wife. To this woman, a Samaritan woman, who's had five husbands and is living with a man that's not her husband now, to her, Jesus gives the first public declaration of himself as Messiah, giving her the hope and the promise of springs of water welling up to eternal life in her soul. Jesus identifies with the abused, with the neglected, also with the mistreated, like the little children in Matthew 19 whom the disciples rebuked and tried to shoo away from pestering Jesus. Take all these kids away. They're such a nuisance, Jesus says to his disciples rebuking them let the little children come to me and do not hinder them do not mistreat them do not keep them from me for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven why is tamar mentioned in the genealogy of jesus because jesus identifies with abused neglected mistreated people like tamar but also this, this instance of Judah and Tamar shows up in Jesus' genealogy to remind us that, friends, Jesus can redeem even the ugliest sins of your past, like Judah. Perhaps you read Genesis 38 and you don't necessarily identify with Tamar and all of her desperate situation, but perhaps you do identify with Judah and his hot mess of a situation. In Genesis 38, Judah's sin is so very ugly. But his sin of denying his daughter-in-law what she deserved, his sin of treating her like a prostitute. His sin is ultimately redeemed by God. That word redeemed means to be bought back, to be used for a good purpose. 
It was a word that was, that was oftentimes used to reflect the, the purchasing of freedom of a, of a slave or giving a new life to somebody who, who previously did not have one. This is to say God took the wickedness of Judah's sin and made the end result of this very ugly event in Judah's life to result in the praise of God when Jesus the Messiah is born. You see that? God takes this Maury Povich event in Jesus' past and turns it to his glory because it's through the offspring of this Maury Povich disaster that Jesus is ultimately born. This passage, friends, of course, it does not give us license to go about doing all sorts of evil just to see what good God will do with it. It's not like we read Genesis 38 and like, you know, I wasn't thinking about being a particularly wicked person today, but if God can bring good out of that, let's see what he can do with this. Genesis 38 does not encourage us to do that, but it does, it does hold out hope for those of us with really ugly sins in our past. It holds out hope to we who are sinners that God can turn our sins for good and for his glory. He can buy back, he can redeem our wickedness and shape it into another turn on the long winding path of our lives that leads to his glory. That word redeem comes from the same word for ransom, a payment made to retrieve something that was lost or enslaved. You may sense that you're lost in a sea of sin and foolish choices like Judah. You may feel enslaved to your selfish and wicked desires. Listen, friend, if God can take the sin of Judah and turn it to rejoicing in the birth of Jesus, then you can trust Jesus to ransom your life from the sin that you're living in today. Jesus teaches us. Jesus shows us. And even he can redeem horrible sins of the past like Judah. Jesus himself says this in Mark's gospel, chapter 10, verse 45. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, as an act of redemption for many. Do you need redeeming? Do you need ransom from your enslavement to sin? Turn to Jesus. Third, Jesus is the promised king forever. That's what we learn. That promised king forever who was promised to Judah. We've already hinted at this, but let's just be sure that we don't miss it. Judah, near the end of his father Jacob's life, received that promise that his descendant would rule forever. The scepter would never depart from the line of Judah. His descendant, Judah's descendant, would not just be any king. Not even just king of Israel like David. But his descendant would ultimately be king of kings and lord of lords. At whose name every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus, the son of David, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam, the son of God, is is. Lord is Christ forever to the glory of God. Jesus is the promised king forever that was given to Judah. Fourth and finally, we learn this about the inclusion of Judah and Tamar, Tamar especially, in the genealogy of Jesus. That Jesus identifies with sinners by choosing to be born from a line of sinners. God could have chosen to give his son through any line of people that he had, that he had selected. And yet, the lineage that we find in Scripture that God works among and that God works through to bring the Messiah into the world is a hot mess of a family. Maybe a lot like yours. I don't know. But that's the point. We know we are not perfect. We know that we need redeeming. 
We know instinctively and sometimes explicitly that we do not stand up to, we cannot stand up to the holiness of God on any given day. We know that we are a lot like Judah and Tamar. And Jesus does not arrive on the scene of human history, plop down from the sky as a righteous judge, proving his supremacy and his authority over all things at that first Christmas, though he certainly could have and would not have been wrong to do so. But instead, Jesus comes, mysteriously adding humanity to his divinity by being born of a woman who herself was a sinner in a long line of sinners like Judah and Tamar so that we could really know Jesus and genuinely be known by Jesus. What's the importance of Jesus being born, though miraculously conceived from a line of sinners like Judah and Tamar? Well, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4 tells us why this matters. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.15, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet was without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why is Jesus born from a long line of dirty, rotten sinners like Judah and Tamar and all the others that are there as well? To identify with dirty, rotten sinners like me and you. Amen. To be a priest who can plead our cause, a righteous priest who can plead our cause before a holy God and who can do it rightly, And who, because there is no sin in him, he can go directly to the Father with our sins. And because uh, he is fully man, even though he's at the same time fully God, he can bring all of God directly to us without anything held back. Jesus identifies with sinners by choosing to be born from a line of sinners so that you can know him and, friend, be intimately known by him. I wonder, do you think God made a mistake with Judah and Tamar, including them in Jesus' story? This has happened by accident. And to the careless observer of Scripture, it may appear that way. But when we dig just a little bit deeper, when we look just a little bit closer, what we find in Jesus, son of Judah by Tamar, is a Savior who is unafraid to call sinners his family and to call sinners to become part of his family. Have you been cast down and thrown aside, abused like Tamar? Hear the invitation this morning, run to Jesus, because he knows your suffering. Are you burdened by the weight of your sin, longing for forgiveness and redemption? Then friend, hear the invitation, come to Christ who died to ransom, to redeem, to rescue sinners like you and me. Are you lost? Are you lonely in this world? You feel like no one understands you or could ever really know you? Do you feel like you are the only person in all the universe who understands what you are like? Then go to that great king and priest, Jesus the Christ, who can sympathize with your weakness, who gives grace and mercy in the shadow of his glorious throne. This terrible story about Judah and Tamar points us to a wonderful Savior in Christ who identifies with sinners, who gives hope for rescue for those that need it, who identifies with the mistreated, the neglected, the abused, and says to all, come to me. There's hope in me. There's rest in me. There's life in me. There's forgiveness in me. Friends, at Christmas, don't miss that. If you're struggling with with 
dark and dirty pasts. Come to Jesus, let him redeem them. If you're struggling with, with ugliness in, in your life history, or maybe you're struggling with ugliness right now and you think there's no way God could do anything good with me, look no further than Judah and Tamar and come to Christ who redeems even the worst, seemingly worst of situations that he might save you, make you clean, wash you, make you new by his blood. Trust him, follow him, receive life in his name. Let's pray.